0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Heart Podcast. This is the first episode that I'm recording in 2020. And I want to thank all of our lovely, loyal listeners for tuning in over the last few years. You've really helped the podcast to grow to one of the highest rated science, technology, medicine podcasts on the Internet. So please continue to subscribe and spread the word. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Felice Gersh. Dr. Gersh is from Irvine, California. And she is an obstetrician and gynecologist, or an OBGYN for those in the US. And we have a long discussion all about menopause and hormone replacement therapy in the 21st century and the impact that that can have on cardiovascular disease. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today for this episode of the Heart Podcast. Uh, Felice, could you introduce yourself for the audience?
1: Sure. So I am a clinician and an educator. I'm a board-certified OBGYN, and I also have board certification in the new specialty called integrative medicine. I work and direct my medical practice, which is in Irvine, California, and I lecture and teach both doctors and also the public, both nationally and internationally, on all types of issues relating to female health.
0: And Felice, you recently wrote an editorial with Professor Carl Levy on a paper we published in Heart, uh, which is all about the effect of menopause on cardiovascular risk factors. Can you tell us a little bit about what the authors did in that paper? What was the question that they were trying to answer?
1: Well, they wanted to see how conventional risk factors would change in women based on the time that they went into menopause. So they took data from the large United Kingdom Medical Research Council National Survey of Health and Development, and they used that data to assess a variety of issues. They looked at lipids, and they looked at hemoglobin A1c. They looked at systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and they really looked at quite a a lot of um, women. It was about 2,500 women, and it included both Uh, mailing surveys and actually in-person data collection. And so they looked at these women based on the time that they went into menopause. And then looking at these risk factors that are conventional risk factors, they wanted to see if they differed for women based on the time they went into menopause. And what they found was that it didn't seem to be very significant whether a woman went into menopause when she was 49 or 50, 51, 52. And they did have some issues though because they had to try to um, use different types of statistical analysis to accommodate all kinds of issues that women had like using pharmaceuticals to address lipid issues and blood sugar issues during these years. They also tried to account for use of hormones on and off and then a fair a fair number of the women in the study had hysterectomies, but with the hysterectomy, some of the women had their ovaries retained, and some had their ovaries removed, and it was kind of challenging to try to accommodate for all of that. But so they used their statistical. Um, I call it magic, because I don't really know how they come up with all of these algorithms. But they used all these statistical analyses, and their conclusion was that it really didn't seem to make a lot of difference when they looked at these conventional risk factors that we measure so frequently in, in our patients.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's already accepted that the earlier a woman enters the menopause, so the risk of cardiovascular disease increases, you know, there are more cardiovascular events, certainly. So I guess these authors were showing that this increased risk associated with an early menopause, be it surgical or natural, is not fully explained by an increase in cardiovascular risk factors over the next few years, right?
1: Well, I think that there's a really important point that came out of this is that it really didn't look at very early onset of menopause, because really, the variety of issues really circled around older women. Um, And the women who had their ovaries removed, they often were also, they had hysterectomies and they really didn't account for whether the women had or did not have their ovaries. And as we know, taking out a uterus is not menopause. And that's sort of a confusion because actually I really dislike the term menopause because it really talks about having the period stop. But really what menopause is about is ovarian senescence and the the lack of ovarian production of these vital hormones that women have through their reproductive years. And because they really didn't account, they couldn't account for hysterectomies with or without the ovaries, it really wasn't a study of really early onset of menopause. So if you really look at what the data is and what it really can help us with, it's that if a woman goes into menopause around the normal time of menopause, whether she's 49 or 50, 51, 52, over the long haul, by the time she's 69, because they looked at measurements over the course of time, up to age 69, that it really doesn't seem to have a huge impact in the long haul, but this is really not addressing early onset of menopause, like in a, before the age of 40, or between the ages of 40 and 44, and there is really very strong research that shows that that is a huge risk factor. Women who have onset of menopause or what I would prefer to refer refer to it as ovarian senescence when their ovaries stop working before the age of 40 have dramatically high, double the risk of having a coronary artery event by the time they're 60. And if they d- develop menopause or ovarian senescence between 40 and 44, their risk of an Cardiac event is increased by about 60%. But when you look at that group of women, by the time they hit 70, there doesn't, or over 70, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference at that point between the general population of menopausal women and the ones who developed it early. So the real risk is in the early onset menopausal group is in their 50s. That's when they're having cardiac events that differ from the the large percentage of women who go into menopause around age 50, 51.
0: And can we talk about the Women's Health Initiative study, the WHI study? Because as a cardiologist, I suppose I've been brought up to believe that if we have to use estrogen at all uh, in, in, in women that have had, as you say, that have had menopause, we should use the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time because of an increased risk of cardiovascular events. But you and your uh, co-author of the editorial, Professor Levy, Uh, really take quite a lot of contention with the WHI study in that it's flawed, it used the wrong dose of estrogen, it used the wrong preparation, and it was also given the wrong way. So can you tell us a bit more about that and and the issues you have with the WHI study?
1: Yes, James, it's really everything you just said and more. It's such a shame that the you know, the conclusions from that study were generalized to every sort of hormonal preparation and dosage. And that's not even what they wanted. And when you looked at the conclusion, they said, don't use this type of formulation. They're they're recommending that not be used. There was really nothing in that study that said that you can't use a different dose, a different regimen, a different formulation. And so to me, it's like doing a study with strawberry flavored jelly beans And then the conclusion is that you should never eat organic strawberries. I mean, they didn't test the type of estrogen that the ovaries make, the 17-beta estradiol that would be delivered actually into the bloodstream, not through the GI tract, which changes everything when it goes through the first pass through the liver. So you're really not testing any type of hormone that's delivered through through the skin if you did bioidentical estradiol as a transdermal delivery system. And the medroxyprogesterone acetate turned out to be probably the worst choice ever for a progestin. And the word progestin is a made up, man made word for a chemical that has some action on the progesterone receptors, but it's not progesterone. Technically, it's really an endocrine disruptor because it's not progesterone, but it can alter the way natural progesterone works so using medroxyprogesterone acetate was probably responsible for the increase which was small but the increase that they saw in breast cancer occurrence and also when you give estrogen orally you increase blood clotting factors and increase high sensitivity c-reactive protein it's a more inflammatory kind of a of a drug and in fact The risk for blood clotting is increased fourfold when you give the conjugated equine estrogens that were used in the women's health initiative. So I think we need to just finally put it to bed and say that study was only relevant to what was studied and stop making generalizations because we know what from so much scientific research that has been published, what actual estrogen and progesterone does in the female body it's really the link between reproductive functions and all of metabolic functions because it's one woman's body. And reproduction is really the prime directive of life. And when women get old, and then nature says you shouldn't be reproducing anymore, and it shuts down the ovarian production, it has enormous implications for all the metabolic functions in the female body. There are receptors for these hormones on virtually every organ in the female body. So that's why you have such a myriad of potential harm that can come when you lose the vital production of these hormones from the ovaries. So let's just say that Women's Health Initiative was what was best at the time. They did the best they could. It was started in the 1990s when we didn't have any of these other formulations. We didn't really even know all the different functions of estrogen, the type of receptors, and all the different um, types of issues that estrogen really serves in the body. So let's just say it's of historical interest only and let's look to the future.
0: Could you just briefly describe for the cardiologist what what the investigators did in the in the WHI study?
1: Sure. Do you they have the, took... Just
0: the rough details of, of, of the kind of uh, preparation that they used and the age of the the subjects they looked at.
1: Absolutely. So they used women who had no symptoms of menopause. They were not allowed to have any hot flashes or night sweats to be in the study because we everyone knows that that would actually make it hard to make it double-blinded. And it was a double-blinded study because women's hot flashes would immediately improve and they would know they were getting the actual hormones. So you could not have hot flashes or night sweats. So in order to accommodate that, the average age, and also because they wanted to see rapid effects. And younger women don't have a lot of heart attacks and strokes. So they wanted to use an older age group. So the average age of the woman entering into the WHI study was already 63. And from in terms of their medical history, it was all just patient observation it was what the patient said so the patient or the the study subject had to say she didn't have cardiovascular issues and she didn't have osteoporosis but there was no testing to actually confirm any of that to begin with
0: and what kind of um, route and medication did they get then
1: so they used what's called conjugated equine estrogen and what that is it's a conglomeration of a whole variety of different estrogens that would never be found in a human female body. These have already gone through the conjugated process in the liver of the horse who was pregnant, and so it was prepared for being removed from the body through the urine. So it had a big conglomeration of all types of estrogen products and had a much, much higher ratio of estrone to estradiol than would ever be found naturally in a human female adult. So it was a product that would never naturally be in the human female, and it was um, given in a static dosing, and as I mentioned, it was combined in the women who had a ut- who did have a uterus with the progestin medroxyprogesterone acetate, which has been shown to have a lot of harmful effects in the female body.
0: And these were both given orally, right? These medications, yeah.
1: Yes, and they, they were given orally, so you had the first pass through the liver effect with the estrogens.
0: And what were the main findings of that study?
1: Well, they stopped it quite early after just over five years because they said that when they looked at all of these metrics and they used a a new system that had never been used before, they said that it really did not look like it was a safe combination. And so they had to stop it for safety reasons. And there was also at that time a higher incidence, about 24% increased risk of breast cancer. And then when they did the analysis, they initially found that there was a higher risk of blood clots and strokes.
0: Okay. And you and uh, Dr. levy have been proposing that we revisit uh, this issue in terms of using a different preparation of oestrogen uh, replacement therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what kind of trials or what data we have already on, on transdermal administration?
1: Absolutely. Transdermal administration has been shown to not elevate the risk of developing blood clots. So that is really, really a critically important factor. And we know that transdermal estrogen, because it does not go through the first pass in the liver, it's not increasing high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And inflammation is one of the markers that has not been measured very commonly in women and really may differentiate a lot of female issues with cardiovascular events from males. Inflammation is important for everyone, but it may be especially important for women because after menopause, there is a chronic low-grade inflammation that develops because estrogen is found on the, with receptors on all of the immune cells, and so there's a lower threshold to create inflammatory cytokine release. So definitely transdermal estrogen, and it has been shown to be quite safe. In the KEEP study, which came out fairly recently, it was a relatively short study, just a few years, there was not shown to be any, any risk at all from using transdermal estrogen. So I think the future is with transdermal estrogen and a bioidentical progesterone. The one that's been most commonly used is micronized. Until at the time of the Women's Health Initiative, they didn't have the capability of giving a bioidentical progesterone orally because they hadn't developed the micronization process yet. So you can't blame them for what they did at the time, but now we do have the capability of giving women much safer formulations that have been shown to be safe.
0: And presumably trials are ongoing to make sure that there isn't the same signal with with breast cancer uh, and strokes. Is that correct?
1: Well, most of the research that I'm seeing right now are more analyses of previous studies, meta-analyses and so on. I hope that there will be some more studies using transdermal estrogen, of course, these studies are so expensive to run, so getting another large-scale study of the magnitude of the Women's Health Initiative may never happen. And that's really why in the editorial we say, you know what, based on the data, we live in the here and now. When you look at the timing hypothesis, which really does seem to be valid, that when you give hormones to women close, in close proximity to the onset of menopause, it will have benefit and that was shown in a number of studies, say the, as with the elite study, but that used oral estrogen. But when you give estrogen close to the time of menopause, certainly within 10 years, you can see a lot of benefit. Once a woman already develops significant cardiovascular ills, it's really hard to reverse. So you have to think of estrogen and hormones as more being proactive and preventative than actually repairing and reversing damage that's already occurred. So we can't wait, in my opinion, based on the data we now have and the fact that we, we can't wait for women to get further and further out into menopause and then say, "Okay, now you can start. We have this small window of opportunity to really help women. So because there may never be another study of the magnitude as the Women's Health Initiative, based on the data we do have from these smaller studies like the KEEP study where safety has been shown, I think it's time to start prescribing bioidentical hormones to the vast majority of women, or at least offering it, giving informed consent, giving them the data so they can make their own decision instead of working in this real feeling of fear that has really been so pervasive since the Women's Health Initiative came out almost 20 years ago. So we should stop being afraid of hormones and we should embrace them and understand them and offer it to women based on the data we currently have available.
0: And do you think that women, um, if the studies you've mentioned continue to show safety, will, will women be on this lifelong once they enter the menopause or is this something that you may give for five years um, or 10 years? Have you got any feeling about that?
1: Yes, well, fortunately, some of the organizations like the North American Menopause Society and the International Menopause Society have eased up. They really jumped on the bandwagon right after the Women's Health Initiative came out and were rather anti-hormones, just as everyone seemed to feel at the time. But now it's really the guidelines have eased up and it's really based on what the woman decides with her own physician as to how long she should stay on hormones. And this sort of arbitrary cutoff of age 60 is gone. There is no longer an arbitrary cutoff. It's really for the woman to decide with her physician what's working for her and how she feels. And no longer are there any arbitrary cutoffs.
0: And when you say the guidelines there, Felice, which which society are you referring to?
1: Well, originally, the American College of OBGYN and the North American Menopause Society, of or the organizations I'm most familiar with, that they really recommended that you not stay on hormones for life. That was definitely not recommended, and that it started off with the same legs like you mentioned, use the smallest dose for the shortest period of time. Mm. Now, what we're saying, what and more and more of us are saying, and the, these organizations are loosening up, is that you give the appropriate dose, the most efficacious dose, for the time that is deemed appropriate based on the individual sort of evaluation of the woman with herself and with her physician's um, advice.
0: And so there's no hard cutoff, as you say, anymore?
1: No, that's gone, I'm happy to say.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds uh, it sounds more sensible, definitely, the era of joint decision-making and uh, letting the, the woman decide and see the evidence, really.
1: Yes, and what I can say in terms of studies – Um, I'm with a small group, and we are actually at the beginning stages of developing a study, which we're just getting some funding and getting it all together. And what we're going to look at is trying to give physiologic replacement of hormones. Physiologic meaning trying to give the levels that you would see in a young, healthy, reproductive-aged woman. So we're talking about giving hormones to actually mimic a menstrual cycle, where you would actually have the rhythms, because we now know it's not really um, just having hormones. It's also the interaction among hormones and the rhythm, just like there's a beautiful circadian rhythm, which he's now discovered, and ovaries have circadian rhythms, we now know. Also, there is this beautiful lunar rhythm, which has really been completely ignored, because when you look at the history of hormonal therapy, it's really based on one thing, and that is The suppression of night sweats and hot flashes. It has not been given in the past, and it's not approved at this time by the FDA, for treating anything but hot flashes. But if we start expanding our understanding and view of hormones for women in the menopausal years, then we have to start exploring not just giving small static doses, which can suppress those types of symptoms, but rather looking to help maintain optimal health, which could involve perhaps giving hormones that actually mimic the menstrual cycle, but we have no real data on that. So that's what my little group is going to try to do, is to look at physiologic hormone replacement for women in the menopause and see how that compares to static dosing and where the future might be as we look down the road for women and trying to optimize their health through the years, sometimes half their life spent in menopause.
0: Wow it sounds like a fascinating study and uh, I really look forward to seeing uh, what you guys come up with.:
1: Well, I'll keep you on in the loop, James.
0: Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining me today.)